The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. December 11 edition PFT PM Podcast. And oh my gosh, there is plenty of stuff to talk about today. And I want to start with the the big news, the obvious news, the, the thing that we all saw coming maybe at the end of the season. I didn't think it would happen during the season, but this is the last gasp for a presumed playoff team to hold their spot. The Vikings sending John DeFilippo packing after Monday night's loss to the Seattle Seahawks, confirming that when there is smoke, there usually is a flicker of some sort of a flame. And in this case, it was a raging inferno that the Vikings were doing their best to keep under wraps, but it was coming out from time to time. Anytime Mike Zimmer would publicly complain about the lack of a commitment to the running game, that's when we knew or should have known there were issues between Zimmer and John DiFilippo. Now, Filippo, the first-year offensive coordinator, the guy who many in the media just presume is eventually going to become an NFL head coach, well, a wrench was thrown into those plans today. I mean, when it's time to interview for head coaching opportunities, and he was interviewed by Arizona last year, even though he'd never been a coordinator, you're going to have to have a damn good explanation as to why you got fired by the Vikings with three games left in the season. And there are two fundamental concerns here as I see it. Actually, three. Number one, you're always employed by somebody, unless you're the owner. There's always somebody you answer to. And if you're the head coach, there's going to be people in the organization you answer to. John DeFilippo has shown, through his failure to do what Mike Zimmer wanted him to do, an inability, a reluctance, a flat-out refusal to do what his boss tells him to do. And no matter how much money anyone is paying these people to coach NFL teams, they expect a certain amount of deference. And they expect these folks to do what they are told to do. Now, you can negotiate certain protections in your contract that gives you the discretion to do whatever you want to do. So there are going to be certain things where maybe you don't have to listen. But even then, it's smart to listen. Brad Childress, for example, had the final say over personnel in Minnesota. But when he abruptly dumped Randy Moss without talking to anybody first, that's the kind of thing that can cause your employer to sour on you. So there's a way to handle your business, even if you do have an extensive amount of discretion over what you do and how you do it, to ensure that there's a level of harmony that permits you to successfully do the things you need to do. So for John DiFilippo... If he's not listening to his boss, Mike Zimmer, now, is he going to listen to, is he going to defer to, is he going to do the things he needs to do to have the right relationship with whoever his boss would be if he's a head coach? Secondly, is DiFilippo able to design an effective offense based upon whatever the pieces are that are available to him? 
It's not about a guy's system. Tony Dungy tells a story of when he was looking for an offensive coordinator in Tampa, and he was asking the candidates what their plan was for using Warwick Dunn and Mike Allstott. And some of the candidates said, they'll just learn my system. That's not the way to coach football players. The way you coach football players is to figure out who you have, what they do, and you adapt your system to them. You don't just say, well, all right, they're going to go into my system and either they're going to succeed or they're going to fail. Now, some coaches still do that, and some coaches like Kyle Shanahan are very successful at that. They resist players who can't run their system. They take the players they have and they force them into that round hole, even if the peg is square. For the most part, though, and Mike Zimmer explained this to me at the scouting combine three, four, five years ago, successful coaching means taking whatever you have in a given year. And he learned this from his dad, who was a high school coach. Every year, you're going to have different skill sets. You're going to have different players. You're going to have different strengths and weaknesses. So every year, you have to come up with something that allows you to maximize the strengths and minimize the weaknesses. And it really is that simple. John Filippo, based upon the manner in which he wasn't using his offense the way that Mike Zimmer wanted him to use it, not using the personnel available to him in the way that he should, that was the kind of thing that was creating that stress, creating that pressure, and leading to the ultimate outcome, which is John Filippo no longer having employment with the Minnesota Vikings or, for now, any other NFL team. It'll be interesting to see what happens next with Filippo. Will he do a Hugh Jackson and land somewhere for the stretch run? Will he go back to Philadelphia and help there, just be a new set of eyes? Well, an old set of eyes, but an additional voice as the Eagles try to get to the postseason. Is there another team like the Packers as they try to draw the inside straight and get to the playoffs that would benefit from that fresh voice? The Vikings apparently aren't bringing anyone from the outside. My first thought was, boy, wouldn't it be funny if they brought in Mike McCarthy to consult for the last few weeks of the season? Kevin Stefanski, quarterback's coach, is going to take over as the interim offensive coordinator who have the opportunity to earn the job just like Pat Shermer did two years ago when Norv Turner exited after an embarrassing Monday night game against the Bears. The next day, Turner was out. That was a stunner. That was more of a stunner than this one. But either way, this is the second time in a little over two years that Mike Zimmer has either pushed out or created an environment where the offensive coordinator walked out like Turner did two times now that offensive coordinators are out under less than favorable circumstances. And at some point, Zimmer is going to be the guy who comes into focus as the potential problem in Minnesota. And I like Mike Zimmer, and I respect Mike Zimmer, and he's a great defensive tactician. I don't like the idea of completely abdicating responsibility for the offense to your offensive coordinator. I think you put too many eggs in that basket. You put too much trust in an employee who may or may not do what you want him to do. And... As we saw with Filippo, he hired a guy who wouldn't do what Zimmer wanted him to do. And one thing that I'm in the process of doing, I've made it through a couple of weeks. I thought of this last night watching the Vikings play the Seahawks. I think, and, and, and the evidence that I've found so far, and again, it's only through two weeks, when the Vikings have faced third and, and manageable, and I've cut it off at five, when it's third and five or shorter, John Filippo, at least early in the year, was heavily skewed toward calling pass plays in that setting. And, and that third and makeable, the benefit there is you want to keep the opponent on their toes about what's coming. 
if you and and they they study these trends they've got quality control coaches they've got offensive and defensive assistants that are keeping track of that you need to keep track of your own tendencies you need to keep track of the opponent's tendencies you need to be thinking about these and and these really aren't advanced statistical analyses what does the opponent do in third and manageable where you can either run or pass if they're skewing toward the pass then we're gonna we're gonna be more likely to dial up a, a defensive posture that is aimed at guarding against a pass, even if the personnel on the field are intended to make us think a run's coming. And I have a feeling as I go through week three, four, five, six, seven, all the way up until last night, the numbers are going to be 66 to 75%, maybe more, that John Filippo was calling pass plays on third and five or shorter. And, and that's where the commitment to run becomes most obvious when it's not there. Running the ball isn't just running it on first and ten or running it on second and six. Running the ball means having that willingness and having that dedication to make the run a viable option on third and manageable. Not third and really long and you're hoping to pop a draw play. You know, there's been an irrational degree of confidence in the passing game in Minnesota this year, and that has caused the Vikings to be too predictable when it comes to passing situations. And if you don't balance that with the threat of a run, and if you don't keep a defense honest, and especially in third and short, it's more than keeping a defense honest. It's truly about keeping a defense guessing in third and short. That's what the Vikings need to do. That's what the Vikings have to do if the Vikings want to have the kind of offense that can win enough games down the stretch to secure the sixth seed. They benefited from the fact that the Panthers, Washington, and Philadelphia lost on Sunday. So the Vikings are still holding on to the sixth seed by a half game, but they have no margin for error against Miami, at Detroit, and at home against the Bears to end the season. The Bears may be playing for nothing by week 17. They may be locked in as the three seed. They may have that clinched. So what do the Bears do then? If the Bears are locked in as the three seed, and the Bears were in this posture in 2012, where they were playing the Packers, and was it the Packers? No, it wasn't the Packers. There was a year, i got to go back and research this, but I, I can't remember the specifics because it was the Vikings against the Packers in 2012 week 17 and they ended up playing again the following week i remember a bears game in prime time where they needed to win to get in the packers already had it locked up and the bears couldn't pull it off and i don't know why i'm making that point i've really got myself all jumbled up on this anyway my point is this if let me, let me just get straight to my point instead of coming up with an elaborate example that may or may not have existed what do the Bears do if the game means nothing for them, but it means everything for their division rival? Because if they beat the Vikings, then the Vikings get knocked out of the playoffs potentially. If they lose to the Vikings, then they have a rematch the following week if the Bears are locked in as the three seed. And right now they're on track for the three seed. So interesting wrinkle to keep an eye on, especially as we start looking at the week 17 games, which one will be in prime time now the problem is you look at that slate of games there isn't one that cries out 
that the outcome of this game will determine a division because the Ravens and Steelers aren't playing in Week 17. It's Ravens, Browns, and Steelers, Bengals. And that's just luck of the draw when you have these divisional. And that's what the NFL does Week 17. Divisional games only. And the preference is to pick a game where it's a win and in, lose and out for one or both teams that is irrelevant or that has no bearing on whatever happens earlier in the day. And that's hard to find. And last year, the NFL couldn't find one, so there was no Week 17 primetime game. Part of it is a competitive reality where you want these teams who have tentacles between their game and other games, and if this team's win, if that team wins, you you want that all to be settled at the same time. And I'm having a hard time picking a game where it's going to be clear and obvious that a win means something and will mean something at night. It means something going in, and it definitely will still mean something at night. I'm having trouble finding a game. And I don't know, maybe for the second straight year, the NFL decides not to have a primetime game week 17 Sunday night. Now, last year it was New Year's Eve, and I think the NFL, at a time when the ratings were challenged, and they still are, I mean, they're trying to find ways to beef up the ratings, and one way you avoid the ratings tanking and thereby create the perception the ratings are strong is not put a game in a spot where you're setting it up to fail. So if there isn't a clear option, and I didn't intend to get down this rabbit hole, but it's just fun to think about it because last year we were all surprised. I remember getting the phone call. There isn't going to be a game week 17 we don't have a show we don't have a game that's that it could be two straight years that happens you know most years it all works out and there is that one game usually it's a it's a a game between two teams where one is going to win the division and the other has no shot at a wild card but i don't see that lining up this year with three weeks left anyway for the vikings who have three games left i'll i'll gradually get back to my point they got to win all three now, maybe they could lose one and still get some help, but they're going to have to get in. And and I wonder now, because every year there is a surprise firing. And, of course, it's not a surprise if we see the surprise firing coming. And I'm not saying that Mike Zimmer should get fired. I'm not saying he will get fired. I'm not saying he could get fired. Well, I guess I am. I'm saying he could be the surprise firing. That maybe the reason he made the change with John DiFilippo is he knows that if this continues on this track and it doesn't get better, then it's entirely possible that he's the guy who finds out after the season that he's the one who's going to be out of a job. Now, I don't know that the Vikings want to be in the business of looking for a head coach the same year the Packers are. That happened in 2006. It happened in 1992. In 1992, the Packers hired Mike Holmgren. The Vikings hired Dennis Green. Holmgren won a Super Bowl in Green Bay. In 2006, the Vikings hired Brad Childress. Boy, any day I mention his name once is a bad day. I've mentioned him twice now. The Packers hired Mike McCarthy. The Packers won a Super Bowl under McCarthy. Do you really want to go head-to-head for a third straight time? Vikings-Packers trying to hire a coach. Although the Vikings do have this working to their advantage. And again, I, I, I'm just playing out a hypothetical here. I'm not saying that Zimmer should be fired. I think Zimmer's a great coach. And I think the fact that he fired DiFilippo while there's still time to turn the season around. And I think back to 2012. Cam Cameron was fired by the Ravens on December 10. Jim Caldwell was installed as the offensive coordinator on December 10. And even though the Ravens went one and two down the stretch in the playoffs, they ran the table and they won the Super Bowl. 
December 11 this year. Kevin Stefanski is in. John DeFilippo is out. And look, I don't suggest that this is laying the foundation for a Super Bowl run. Although if the Vikings could find a way to click on offense, that defense is good enough that they could be a tough out in January. And all it takes is, you know, a fluky win in the divisional round like the Ravens had in 2012 when they they tied the game because Jacoby Jones got behind the defensive back whose name I can't remember. Remember the defensive back? It wasn't Darian Stewart, was it? No. Defensive back jumped too early. Ball got into Jacoby Jones' hands and the Ravens tied the game and then the Ravens won it in double overtime. But you get a fluky outcome like that in the divisional round and the next thing you know, you develop the momentum necessary to carry it all the way through. Now, look, first the Vikings would have to win at Chicago or Dallas before they'd have to worry about playing the Saints or the Rams. I think it would be a long uphill climb. But they they are good enough. If they could just get those pieces pointed in the right direction, they are good enough. And I've seen comments from a couple of Vikings players Last night was Adam Thielen after the game. Today it's Kyle Rudolph on Sirius XM NFL Radio saying that the players ultimately have to make the plays. And I think they're just saying the right thing. I think they know that part of it is the players making the plays. Part of it is the players executing the play flawlessly. But also part of it is the play caller coming up with plays that will give them easy opportunities to gain yards, popping guys wide open. I talked to somebody last week about that. When you're working with a franchise quarterback, the coach and the quarterback are constantly pushing each other. And they're competing with each other from the standpoint of sometimes the quarterback is going to make that crazy throw that makes the play caller look good. And sometimes the play caller is going to make that crazy play call with someone wide open that makes the quarterback look good. So... The play caller has to be calling the right plays at the right times to allow the team to succeed and to get some easy wins, to get some easy chunk yardages, easy touchdowns. That's where the genius of play design against a given defense, plus knowing when to call it, that's where play calling happens. I mean, Thielen's comments were naive. They were, they were so naive it makes me think he knows damn well that that's not how it works, but he feels compelled to, to throw a bone to DiFilippo. I don't know. Successful play calling isn't just pin the tail on the donkey. It's not a roulette wheel. Well, what play are we going to do now? I don't know. Here, let's just spin the wheel. All right, go execute it. It's picking the right play at the right time under the right circumstances. So the defense is constantly confused and stressed and pressured. And when they're on the sidelines, they're, they're, they're throwing their helmets. They, they, they don't know what's going on out there. I remember going to Vikings-Steelers game in 1989, and I was sitting close enough to the Vikings bench. And that was a, a year when the Steelers had been blown out by the Browns, they had been blown out by the Bengals, and that was a year the Vikings were presumed to be Super Bowl contenders in the NFC. And the Steelers' offense was having its way with the Vikings' defense, and Keith Millard comes over and he slams his helmet down and he yells, what the F is going on out there? That's the vibe that you want a defense to have. That's when you're calling the right plays at the right time and you're getting the right execution. It's a combination. So Kevin Stefanski gets the task of, in five days, coming up with an offense, coming up with a plan, coming up with plays that will 
stymie the Miami Dolphins defense. And this is a Dolphins team that is carrying in this vibe that and, and, and I see some parallels here because Mike Zimmer admitted last year after the blowout loss to the Eagles that they didn't get over the euphoria of beating the Saints with a miracle final play the way they should have or could have. The Dolphins, can they get over their miraculous win over the Patriots? Can they put it behind them quickly enough to refocus on a Vikings team that is now desperate? And for the Vikings, they may not make it to the playoffs, but the playoffs start this weekend. Like it or not, the postseason begins now. Because one false move and one of these other teams is going to jump the Vikings. And the good news for the Vikings is this. Let's look at week six, uh, week 15 schedule. There's a chance all these teams are going to lose. And and there's a chance the Packers are going to pull their way back into this. Right now, what? The Vikings are 6-6-1 six, six and one, and the Packers are 5-7-1. and one. The Vikings would win the tiebreaker because 1-0-1 is the head-to-head. But week 15 has, and I'm looking at the NFC contenders here. Okay, Green Bay has to play at Chicago. Not easy. Washington is at Jacksonville. Washington just feels like they've given up. Josh Johnson gets the start. Of course, Jacksonville feels like they've given up. But Washington's still quietly in contention. They Let's say they lose. The... Eagles are at the Rams. The Panthers are hosting the Saints. Those three, six, and seven teams could all lose. So, I mean, the Vikings could lose and I guess still be somewhat alive, but they they, they can't afford to screw around. They can't play those games. This, This is one they have to win. And I really do fear that Mike Zimmer ends up being potentially the surprise firing, especially with all of this focus on offense you know what this could almost be like the the Tony Dungy firing by the Buccaneers in 2001 where John Gruden comes in and does just enough with the offense the the fumes are there from the Tony Dungy defense there's enough quality talent there's there's enough institutional understanding of the defense Monty Kiffin was still there you, you hold that together for a year while you bring someone in who applies his foot to the ass of the offense and you can have that all line up in a very dramatic and special way. I mean, that's possible for 2019 if the Wilfs decide, you know what, enough. And, and that, like I was saying earlier, that facility, I don't think I ever got to the point because I was, I was so concerned about not being perceived as calling for Mike Zimmer to be fired because I think that's premature. But if the Vikings do find themselves in a spot where they are looking for a coach the same year the Packers are, that new facility in Minnesota, that could be the difference maker. That could get them the Holmgren or the McCarthy this time around, the guy who's going to win a Super Bowl. And and, and that urgency is just, it, it, as the years go by, and especially because they got so close last year and the Super Bowl was in Minnesota, I feel like there's a greater desperation by the organization to finish the job once and for all that they've just been screwing around for 50 years trying to win a Super Bowl. They've been screwing around for 40-plus now trying to get back. And and that urgency, that's fine, but, I, you know, does it become panic? Are they too impatient? Those are all questions that the Wolves are going to have to ask themselves when the season ends, and a lot of it depends upon whether or not this season ends with a playoff berth or not. And it still may. We'll see how it plays out. In Oakland, there won't be a playoff berth, but there will be a lawsuit. The lawsuit's been filed. City of Oakland, 
This was approved by the city council back in July. The lawsuit is now filed against all teams, Raiders and the rest of the teams, the entire NFL for antitrust, breach of contract. It's a 49-page lawsuit. I'm going to read the whole thing so I can understand exactly what the theories are. The argument being that the relocation of the Raiders violates the law, violates the antitrust laws. And Oakland wants compensation for its financial losses arising from the departure of the Oakland Raiders. Now, what the lawsuit means and whether or not it's going to be viable is one thing. What it means to the business relationship between the Raiders and Oakland, it's probably dead now. The Raiders still need to find a place to play for 2019 and possibly 2020. And previously, when there had been threats of a lawsuit to be filed by the city of Oakland against the Raiders, it was made very clear that if this happens, there will be no Raiders team in Oakland in 2019. Now that it's a done deal, the team has no comment. I think one of the reasons the team has no comment, now first, first of all, when you threaten that there won't be an Oakland Raiders in 2019 if this lawsuit is filed, it may just be an idle threat aimed at getting them not to sue. Once they sue, that changes the analysis. But here's the reality. There's still a game to be played at the Oakland Coliseum. Broncos come to town Christmas Eve. You don't want an ugly, violent scene at the Coliseum on Christmas Eve. You don't want those fans showing up knowing this is the last game ever to be played in Oakland. You, you want those fans to never know what the last game was. And if there's any chance, if it gets out that that game is going to be the last game in Oakland... They need to move that game. They really do. They need to move that game to a neutral site. If there's any chance that it's going to be a raucous, ugly, violent scene because the fans there showing up know that the Raiders are going to be ripped away from them after that game, maybe you just don't even have that game there. Now, look, it creates competitive advantages for the Broncos, disadvantages for the Raiders. There's a chance that both, and we already know the Raiders are eliminated. There's a chance the Broncos are going to be eliminated by then. So what does it really matter? But then the other reality is, where are you going to play that game to get people to even show up on Christmas Eve? Maybe the best way to sell tickets is for people to think it's going to be the last game ever played in Oakland by the Raiders. So... There's a certain irony to the idea that one of the most litigious teams in all of sports is getting a taste of its own medicine. I don't know how viable the claims are. One thing I saw, though, and I have a feeling the NFL is not happy about this. I saw that the NFL's constitution and bylaws were attached as an exhibit to the complaint. And I I don't know how secret of a document that is, but this isn't a document that the NFL attaches to any of its public websites like at nflcommunications.com there are a lot of policies you can get access to as a media member you have to have a login i don't think they make the constitution and bylaws available yeah i don't think that's something that that they want people to see i mean this gets into nuts and bolts powers of the commissioner all all of the things all of the rules now and and i I have a copy of this somewhere. Someone sent it to me last year, and I remember, hey, this is something that I can look at from time to time because not everyone has it. Well, now, all you have to have is an internet connection and you have it because it is a 
a uh, an attachment. It's Exhibit One to this complaint. And I, I've asked the NFL for comment generally on the lawsuit, but I've also pointed out, you know, is there any any commentary on the idea that that this uh, supposedly private document has been made available to anyone who wants to see it. I haven't gotten a response yet from the NFL, but but that's another intriguing little wrinkle here. And I'm scrolling through the Constitution and bylaws to see if there's any other exhibits, anything else that they may have attached. There's a lot of pages. See, that's the thing. The complaint itself is 49 pages, but the full filing is 293 pages. And, uh, and it's the timing is interesting because the loss, and, and I think this is a genius move from a PR standpoint. There's an ownership meeting tomorrow in Dallas. So what happens is the various owners will be speaking to the media and you never know what someone's going to say. And anything any of these owners say can and will be used against them in this litigation. So, you know, right now, if I'm the head of PR with the NFL, I'm getting the word out to every owner, say no comment. No comment whatsoever on this litigation. Because the last thing they need is Jerry Jones or someone else who can say something that would then be turned back around against the league, saying something that provides that statement that gets used over and over again during the litigation to prove the case. The other attachment is the NFL's policies and procedures for proposed franchise relocations. I think I've seen those before, but it's that constitution and bylaws. I think that's going to, that's going to anger some people at, uh, at park Avenue. I think that's all the stuff worth talking about for now. Tyree kill practice today, which is good for the chiefs. They play Thursday night, best two teams in the AFC. And if you haven't been paying attention to the Chargers, you may be in for a surprise on Thursday night. Chargers in the top four, I think, now in the PFT power rankings. The Rams are three. I think the Rams are three and the Chargers are four. I think that's what it is. I should, I should remember this. I just put them together earlier today. The Chargers could still pass the Chiefs. Here's how the Chargers end up the number one seed. Number one, they win out. Okay, let's see what the Chargers have left here. The Chargers have... At Kansas City on Thursday night, they host Baltimore the following Sunday. And then the last... Oh, no, it's a it's a Saturday game, I think. Right? Is it a Saturday game? I think it's a Saturday game. And then they host the Broncos on Week 17. Or they're at Denver, excuse me. Um, Chargers went out. And then if the Chiefs lose to the Chargers, which obviously would happen if the Chargers went out since they play each other, duh... It's at Seattle, and then it's a home game against Oakland. They lose that game at Seattle. And Seattle, very good at home. Chiefs lose that game. That's a huge game. That's Sunday night, week 16. Chiefs lose that game, and the Chargers win out. Chargers the one seed. Chargers aren't just the division champs. They are the one seed. And it's that simple. The path is very, very simple. Win their next three games and root like hell for the Chiefs to lose at Seattle. Now... The Seahawks may not be playing for anything by then. They may be locked in as the five seed, but, you know, I don't think Pete Carroll is going to... Competition Wednesday when they go out there and beat the hell out of each other to practice, I don't think Pete Carroll is going to take the gas pedal off. This is an opportunity for his team to gain incredible confidence that they can win in the postseason. 
So, you know, while we're caught up in talking about all these other more immediate issues and this Chargers team is just a team that we just kind of aren't paying attention to, there's a very realistic shot that they will end up being the number one seed in the AFC. Wouldn't that be something if the Rams are the one seed in the NFC and the Chargers are the one seed in the AFC? Wouldn't it even be something if there is an LA team that ends up being the number one seed and it's not the Rams? Because right now it would be the Saints. All right, this uh, episode, by the way, of the PFTPM podcast brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, otherwise known as NHTSA, is working hard to change habits and save lives during the holiday season. We all know about the risks of driving drunk. You could get in a crash. People could get hurt or killed, including you. Let's take a look at some statistics that may surprise you. Almost 29 people in the United States die every day in alcohol-impaired vehicular crashes. 29 every day. That works out to an average of one person every 50 minutes. So in the time that this podcast will have elapsed today, one person will have died due to an alcohol-impaired vehicular crash. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third over the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives every single year. But the other thing to keep in mind, plenty of people don't realize that driving while high can be just as dangerous as driving while drunk. In 2015, 42% of drivers killed in crashes tested positive for some type of drugs. And from 2015 back to 2007, marijuana use among drivers killed in crashes doubled. So driving while high can be just as deadly, and it is just as deadly as driving while drunk. So stop kidding yourself. If you're impaired from alcohol or from drugs, do not get behind the wheel. If you feel different, you drive different. Drive high, get a DUI, drive sober, or get pulled over. Please, during the holiday season and the rest of the year. There's so many ways to get to where you want to go without having to put that key in the ignition. Even if you don't have a designated driver, you don't need a designated driver anymore. Now you have Uber, Lyft. You have your cell phone device where you can easily text someone to come pick you up. Think, think about how different the world is. I was a teenager and I just started driving and a couple of years after that started drinking legally in the 80s when the sensitivity to drunk driving really exploded. And my group of friends and I were always vigilant about having the designated driver. Now, does that mean there were times where one of us drove and shouldn't have? No. I mean, back in the 80s, 19, 20 years old, you're invincible, you're immortal. I'm going to be fine. Oh, well, hey, there's no designated driver tonight. Well, I got to get home. I got, what am I going to do? Hitchhike? Now, there are so many other ways that you can solve that problem where you don't have to get behind the wheel. That's what's great about the age we live in. We're walking around with this mini computer with the press of a button. A car comes and picks you up. You don't have to talk to anybody. You press the button and Jim shows up in his white Suburban. It's great. Or you can text a friend. Hey, you know what? I need a favor. I had a few tonight and, you know, I'm probably okay, but can you pick me up? So there are plenty of options and there are plenty of alternatives. And it's, it's, it's funny how this commercial read turned into 
a, a little bit of a rant, but you know, I, I just, I think that, that in this day and age, we just need to constantly be aware of what our options are and we need to think about it ahead of time. So if you think about it ahead of time, I'm convinced this is true. If you spend enough time thinking about what your options are before you put yourself in a position where your judgment is impaired, there's going to be a greater chance that when your judgment is impaired, that rational thought that you had is going to squirt through. Like, like when Homer Simpson realized the connection between the union dental plan and Lisa needing braces. Remember that scene? Like eventually your brain is going to realize that message that you embedded in it, that you can text your buddy Joe, or you can press the Uber button. Don't get behind the wheel when you've been drinking or smoking or doing anything that would affect your ability to make good decisions with that 4,000 pound machine that could either kill you or somebody else. All right, time to answer some of your questions. Boy, I hope, I hope the folks at NHTSA really appreciate That was supposed to be a one-minute read, and it ends up being a 10-minute rant. All right, let's answer some of your questions. I went with a Borat gift today because I was just looking for something different. And, and the Borat movie is just sneaky hilarious. I don't know if in this day and age, like 10, 12 years after, they could do it again. I don't know if they could pull it off. I mean, there's a, and, and even at the time, there's a lot of stuff in there that you just like, it's just not, this is really not kosher, but uh, nevertheless hilarious. So uh, we'll see who responded to the the Borat gif. PFTPM Posse, you say teams should hire the best offensive coordinator as head coach. However, the best formula for January football is strong defense and ball control run game, which doesn't require a strong offensive coordinator. What am I missing here? I don't disagree with that, but look at what the Eagles did. The Eagles didn't win the game last year because of a, the Super Bowl last year because of a strong running game or a strong defense. Their defense was good enough. It was great quarterback play. You need great quarterback play to win championships. Yeah, defense wins championships, right? How many how many teams with great defenses and marginal quarterbacks have won the Super Bowl? The Ravens in Super Bowl 35, the Bears in Super Bowl 20, and is that it? You got to have great Super Bowl play. Great quarter you got to have great quarterback play in the Super Bowl or great great uh Super Bowl play in the quarterback if you want to win in the NFL. My buddy John Marks Media from WIP wants to know, will John DeFilippo come back to the Eagles this season or next? I, I, I get, He could come back now. He could come back right now. Maybe he comes back next year. Maybe next year he returns to Philadelphia, familiar territory, partners up with Doug Peterson and tries to get the palate cleanse on his resume. I mean, isn't that the perfect thing to do? Go back to where you were when you got the job that put you on the doorstep of becoming an NFL head coach. Go back there. And, and try to get people to forget. That's what Hugh Jackson wants people to do. Hugh Jackson wants people to forget about 336-1 in two and a half years with the Browns. Filippo doesn't have that much, that same degree of negativity. Go back to the Eagles and maybe people will forget. And maybe they'll just chalk, maybe they'll blame Zimmer. Maybe... And again, I don't want to say Zimmer's getting fired, but maybe if Zimmer gets fired, then the pendulum swings, or as Chris Sims would say, the pendulum swings toward DiFilippo, and he ends up looking like the good guy in all of this. It'll be interesting to see what kind of stuff DiFilippo leaks about Zimmer. Now, he should be physically afraid of Zimmer, because I think Zimmer would go to wherever DiFilippo lives and kick the crap out of him, but sources may have some things to say about Mike Zimmer and John DiFilippo coming up on a Sunday splash report near you.
Nick Lamarca, if Alex Smith's leg injury has repercussions beyond football, and we know the negative con- negative results of concussions, is that the last straw that puts flags on quarterbacks in the very near future? There's nowhere left to safely hit someone standing in the pocket. Now, I, I disagree completely. The broken leg is a fluke injury. The compound fracture is a once-every-30-year injury. And an adult playing professional football suffering a broken leg, a grotesquely broken leg, is not the thing that is going to cause mom and dad to not let their kids play football. The concussion concern is the thing that gets mom and dad to say, you're not playing football. And so orthopedic injuries, broken bones, anything other than brain trauma, there's not that same concern, period. Just not. So I don't think it affects... You know, if there was a compound fracture every other week, that'd be different. It was 33 years to the day since the last grotesque compound fracture, and both times it was a Washington quarterback. Tom Marshall, a.k.a. a red zone Alk, will beating the Packers save Steve Wilkes' job in Arizona? As a Cardinals fan, I hope not. I don't know that it saves Wilkes. I think the real question there is, what are you going to do with Steve Kime? If you're keeping Steve Kime, then you keep Steve Wilkes for another year. If you're getting rid of Steve Kime, don't force the next GM to have a year with Steve Wilkes, because then if Wilkes stumbles his way into a decent season next year, then you got two years with Wilkes. Let the next GM hire his coach. If you're going to hire a new GM, hire a new coach. Just write the checks, treat it as a business expense. I know that, you know, a lot of these owners, no matter how much money you have, you're still kind of cheap. You don't want to pay people to not work. Just as a matter of principle, why do I want to give this guy $3 million to not work? Well, because it's not working. And it's part of the price you have to pay for hiring the guy in the first place. And it's part of the price you have to pay to bring somebody else in. Some owners will do it, some won't. Charles wants to know, what's the explanation for throwing the flag in the Minneapolis-Seattle blocked field goal and then picking it up? They clearly saw the violation immediately. Why the reversal? Who knows where the game goes, but that clearly ended it. And let me just say this. There are so many people, when I made the point that here we have another primetime game in Seattle and it's decided by a bad call, so many people said, oh, look at the final score. Well, yeah, the floodgates opened two plays after that. It was six to nothing. If that penalty had been called and the flag had not been picked up, the Vikings would have had the ball first and 10 on the Seattle 15. Where it goes from there, nobody knows. The Vikings were, were robbed of a chance to turn that first and go first and 10, excuse me, from the 15 into a touchdown. And that was the strategy when they went for it on fourth and short. You know, Kirk Cousins actually made a bad decision there. He tried to look off Bradley McDougald so Kyle Rudolph would be wide open. McDougald didn't take the cheese. And as it turns out, the guy that Cousins looked at in an effort to get McDougald to slide over, Adam Thielen ended up being wide open. But on that play, you don't make it. The Seahawks get it. On the two, you shut them down because the defense was great last night for the Vikings. You get the ball back, you have a short field. So that was how it was supposed to play out. And then you get the short field and you try to score a touchdown. It's beautiful if it works. And if that flag ends up turning into a 15-yard penalty, you have a chance. And who knows what would have happened. Maybe Kirk Cousins would have thrown an interception. Maybe they would have fumbled. Maybe they wouldn't have gotten a first down. Maybe they would have kicked a field goal. Maybe maybe Dan Bailey would have missed a chip shot field goal. But the Vikings should have had the ball first and 10 from the 15. 
And here's what happened. The original call was that Bobby Wagner jumped the, jumped the center by approaching the line of scrimmage. See, this is where it gets very confusing. You can't jump over the center, even if you don't touch the center. You can't jump over the center with a running start from behind the line of scrimmage. But if you're at the line of scrimmage when the ball is snapped, you can jump over the center. So that was the ruling. He was lined up on the line of scrimmage, Bobby Wagner was, when he jumped. Okay, fine. The problem is they missed the real violation. The real violation was Bobby Wagner using his hands to create leverage by pushing off of his teammates. You know, like when you give somebody a boost, right? You put, you know, you make your hands, so you put their foot and you put their foot and you shove them up. Wagner used his hands to shove down to clear the center so he could block the field goal. That was the violation. And Peter King and I talked about this on PFT Live. However you fix it, you got to fix it. And, and the New York pipeline gets used a lot, I think, when it shouldn't be. There was an intentional grounding call that was made very late on Sunday in the Chiefs-Ravens game. It was on Patrick Mahomes. A good 30 seconds after the play, you just see the, the flag just gets dropped. Like he, like, like, he, like he had a handkerchief and he just kind of dropped it. Like there, it's just there. And when we're watching the games at NBC in the viewing room, we're, we're paying attention to those New York decisions. Because we think from time to time some of those decisions are New York decisions. So wh- why not? In the name of getting it right, why didn't Al Riveron say, hey, hey, don't pick that flag up. Don't pick that flag up. Bobby Wagner used his hands to create leverage. Complete violation of the protocol. But it gets it right. Get these calls right. Period. So that's what happened. They, they called it for a reason other than the reason they should have called it for. So the thing that they explained that it was, it wasn't. But the thing that it was, they missed, if that makes any sense. And there is a very good chance it does not. On tour forever, what do you think we'll hear about first? The Colin Kaepernick collusion case or the Mueller investigation? Hashtag smocking gun. I think we'll hear about Mueller before Kaepernick. I think Kaepernick is something that is going to unfold gradually over 2019. I just think as a practical matter, you know, I've said that the collusion hearing in the Kaepernick grievance, the full-blown hearing is going to be a combination of the trial in My Cousin Vinny and the Seinfeld finale. Here's the reality. All those owners aren't going to be showing up at the same time. They're not going to clear everybody's calendar to parade in one after another. You're not going to have Bob Kraft sitting out in the hallway waiting for five guys in front of him to testify. That's not how it's going to work. And these arbitration hearings in, in various industries, and I know at times in the NFL, what happens is they go for a day or two and then they break for like a month and then they go for another day or two. You know, it's a very dispassionate and very, um, it's structured, but it's not all in the moment. Like a trial is something that happens typically in that, you know, that one week in time, everybody puts their life on hold and that's all they think about. And that's all they focus on for a full week is this trial until it's done. And maybe it bleeds into a second week. Or if you're in California, it lasts nine months. I think that what's going to happen here, you know, they're going to be questioning these owners at their convenience. And 
I don't know. I don't know if the hearing. I don't know if it's going to be. They go to them. I don't know what they're going to do. Are they going to have a video uplink? Are they going to testify via satellite? I don't know. Or not even satellite. Remember, we used to hear that all the time. Oh, live via satellite. And is there even anything via satellite anymore? Unless I don't even know. I don't know. I, I guess some TV stuff is, but like for something like this, it would just be a high-speed internet connection. The person would be there uh, on a on a TV screen in real time. So I have a feeling that that it's going to take a while. So. If it's going to take a while and it feels like the Mueller thing's starting to come to a head, and that's not a political comment. I just think that it's fair to anyone out there who's paying attention, however you feel about it politically, it feels like Mueller's coming to a head. I think it's going to be a while for Kaepernick to come to a head. At the Real Forno, how much change can Kevin Stefanski bring to the Minnesota offense for the rest of the season? Remember, he was working with Pat Shermer last year. Maybe they reintroduced some of the Pat Shermer concepts. The problem is Kirk Cousins wasn't there. But that's the challenge. Week to week, come up with a menu of plays that you think will work against the Dolphins' defense this week, against the Lions' defense next week, against the Bears' defense the following week. You don't want to change terminology. And it's not necessarily coming up with new plays. It's about coming up with plays that work. And, you know, one of the best things you can do as a coach is communicate with your players. Hey, Kirk, let's let's go over what, which of these play Which of these plays do you really like to run? Which plays would you like to run this week? You've been watching the film of the Dolphins defense. What do you think is going to work? You know, empower your players to make input. Th- that's where you have to be very secure and self-confident and not have the ego. Understand it's a collaborative process. You go to the quarterback and you say, hey, help me out here. Help me out. What do you think? You know, sometimes it, it requires um, an admission that you know, maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe I need other people to help me out here. But that's what Kevin Stefanski needs to do. He needs to rely on Kirk Cousins. He needs to empower Kirk Cousins. He needs to talk to the receivers. He needs to talk to the running backs. What kind of running plays are going to work here? He needs to be thinking about what his offensive line can and can't do. Peter King suggested earlier today that they need to use a lot of plays where it's short controlled passing designed at getting guys like Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen in space so they can do something with the ball in their hands instead of throwing it down the field. But that's the challenge. And Stefanski has five days to get it together. Nick Estrom wants to know if Rick Spielman should take any blame for what's going on in Minnesota, and if so, how much? He has messed up on quite a few early round picks since Christian Ponder, and the O-line hasn't gotten any better. I know trying to get the O-line better has been a major concern for the Vikings in recent years, and it just hasn't improved to the point where it needs to be. So I think, yeah, the GM, the GM has responsibility there. And also, somebody decided to give Kirk Cousins a three-year fully guaranteed contract, $84 million, and they're stuck with that for the next two years. And it occurred to me watching Cousins last night, and I tweeted this, and I tagged Old Takes Exposed. Go ahead, hold me to it. I said they're not getting to the NFC Championship game with Cousins over the next three years. It ain't happening. There's a limitation there. We see it. Now, maybe with the right offensive coordinator, he can coach Cousins past it. But Cousins has a ceiling. And the challenge is, can they get Cousins past that ceiling? Who dat in Joburg? What do you think of Pete Carmichael as the next Packers head coach? P.S. I know it's a little late, but I think that the biggest loser for the Rams versus Chiefs game was Vic Fangio. Thoughts? 
I don't understand why Vic Fangio is the biggest loser. Does that mean it takes Fangio out of the mix for head coaching jobs because everyone's going to want a go-go pinball offense? I don't know. Pete Carmichael's name, for a while it was coming up, but but not anymore. And I think that because Sean Payton gets so much of the credit for the Saints, it, it, it makes it harder for others there to get credit. Like we just assume it's Payton completely designing the offense and implementing the offense. And um, yeah, it's kind of like in Minnesota, if, if the Vikings have a dominant defense, are we going to give George Edwards the credit or are we going to give it to Mike Zimmer? Now, in New England, Bill Belichick has coordinators from both sides of the ball who become attractive, but Belichick has morphed into a total football coach. And I still don't know why more coaches don't do that. I still don't understand. Because it's the same game. It's not like it's basketball, it's half basketball and half football. It's football. And it just shows you how much effort is necessary to master one side of the ball. And it shows you what capacity Bill Belichick has that he's mastered both sides of the ball. But I think that that's why Carmichael doesn't get any real consideration because the thinking is that offense is all Peyton. Reverend Markworth says that Trent Dilfer has suggested quarterbacks have their own salary caps so they don't handicap a team from getting all the players they need to have a good roster. Thoughts? Well, here's the problem. The market for quarterbacks would go through the roof. Because... If there is no salary cap for quarterbacks, it's the most important position on the field. You would have more quarterbacks forcing their way to market. You would have more guys like Kirk Cousins getting ridiculous contracts. You would have more quarterbacks doing the year-to-year franchise tag thing to try to force their way to market. It, it would give the quarterbacks even more power, more control, and yet wouldn't blow up the salary cap. But you would have, you would have a quarterback potentially making 50% of the salary cap. Of whatever the salary cap otherwise is, you'd have a quarterback making half of that. And also, you would have that opportunity for the teams that would spend and spend and spend. Jerry Jones says, you'd be shocked at the size of the check that I would write if I knew that it would guarantee me to have a championship. He'd just do that with his quarterback. At Pembroke Raider, do you think Amari Cooper gets paid in the offseason or does he hold out like Khalil Mack did? I think that Cooper will get paid. And the problem is the Cowboys are really going to have to pay him. And now he's played well enough to justify it, but the Cowboys are going to have to spend a lot of money to keep Amari Cooper from staying away from the offseason program, staying away from training camp, staying away from the preseason, taking a page out of the Khalil Mack playbook. And remember, they have the same agent, Joel Siegel. Pembroke Raider, where do you see the Raiders playing in 2019 now that the city of Oakland has sued the team in the NFL? I don't know. Where do you go? We hear about San Antonio from time to time. I don't think the Texans or the Cowboys would want that. San Diego's got a stadium. Wouldn't that be funny if the Raiders go to San Diego for a year? It's been reported that Sam Boyd Stadium in Las Vegas is not an option. It needs to be a stadium that has the infrastructure in place to allow that real-time communication with 345 Park Avenue. You go to St. Louis? You play at the Edward Jones Dome or whatever it's called now? Where do you go? For one year, where do the Raiders go? San Diego would be hilarious. It really would be. A year or two in San Diego while they wait for that stadium to get finished in Las Vegas? I don't know. At this point, I don't know. I find it hard to believe it'll be Oakland, but I don't know. Doom Squirrel 598 can you explain the legal reasoning for a Colin Kaepernick retaliation claim because a team won't hire him? Wouldn't he first have to be an employee to be retaliated against, or is it different because of the CBA and he's still 
a union member. You don't have to be an employee to be retaliated against. Now, the classic case of retaliation arises when there is an employee of a company who sues while still employed. And I know from experience in a variety of capacities, both as a defense lawyer, as a plaintiff's lawyer, and as a guy who was an associate at a law firm where there was a legal assistant who sued one of the partners for, I can't even remember what the theory was, but there was a lawsuit that was filed. I think it was some sort of a sexual harassment theory. When you have somebody who is still showing up to work every day and that person has filed a lawsuit against the employer, that creates a ton of awkwardness, a ton of stress. Everyone's walking on eggshells. It creates a lot of power for the employee. People don't like it. But that's the classic case of retaliation, where people give in to their temptation to make the life miserable of the person who has had the audacity to file a lawsuit. Because it is a very aggressive gesture. Even if you're fully within your rights, it's a very aggressive gesture. And it takes all of the discipline that the employer can muster to not retaliate. Now, with Colin Kaepernick, he's not an employee of any of these teams, but he's in the very small pool of highly skilled workers who would be employed by those teams. And... Whether it's collusion over his leadership in the anthem controversy, because he's the guy who made all the other players aware of what they could do, and he's the guy who is identified as the leader of that movement. And if the NFL was putting out the word to the 32 teams that Colin Kaepernick is bad for business, that's where the collusion would come from, not a secret meeting of the 32 owners where they decide among themselves with a blood oath and a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle that they're they're not going to employ Colin Kaepernick. Setting that aside, the mere fact that he has a viable collusion grievance and he's still in the pool of highly skilled workers where there aren't many of them in the world who can do what he does and people with objectively lesser qualifications are getting opportunities and he doesn't even get a chance to come work out. Doesn't even have a chance to have a conversation doesn't have a chance to articulate what it is that he would want by way of a contract when he is completely and totally shunned. And this is all happening at a time when he has a viable collusion grievance against the NFL. If it's not retaliation, if it's not lingering collusion, what is it? See, what you do in a case like this, you take all of the legitimate reasons, these supposedly legitimate reasons that are being offered for not hiring a guy, for shunning a guy, and you expose them as BS. It's not easy to do, and I've been there. You have to show that the reason that is being given by the employer is a pretext for some impermissible motivation. And it is not easy to convince a jury of that. What you have to do, and this comes from very aggressive questioning of witnesses, and one of the reasons why, frankly, I am always on the lookout for BS, and one of the reasons why, and I, and I, I think I've softened a little bit in recent years, and I'm, I'm trying my best to be less belligerent and less combative, when you practice law, first of all, everything is an adversarial process. When you litigate, it's all premised upon people fighting that in this fight of opposing views, the truth will bubble up. 
that doesn't always happen that way. Some alternative version of the truth bubbles up. The truth is very hard to demonstrate when you have one side saying X, the other side saying Y, right? Usually one side or the other's version of the truth gets accepted, but the real truth is somewhere in the middle. That happens a lot. But my point is this. Every witness that you interrogate, every manager who works for the employer, they come to the table with a skewed perspective of what happened. Also, they have a very strong desire to protect their employment, protect their families. That justification of protecting your family goes a long way toward getting people to, to fudge the truth or flat out lie. So when you're representing the interests of someone who was the victim of discrimination, retaliation, whatever, the first thing you do, you lock in all the reasons why the person was fired. And I, I, I always used to be very aggressive about when you file a lawsuit, you file with it requests for documents, you file with it a list of questions that needs to be answered right out of the gates, and you file with it notice that you are taking the deposition of the key people who made the decision right out of the gates. We're locking your story in. Before you can find out what our story is, we're locking your story in. And once I would get through the niceties, the preliminary questions, some of the background stuff on a witness at a deposition, why'd you fire the plaintiff? Why didn't you hire the plaintiff? What do you mean? Well, I want to know the reason why. What's the reason? Give me every reason. Is there any more? Is there another? Is there another? Is there another? Take as long as you need to take. Sometimes it would take an hour to get through that question. And then you go back to all the reasons and you get the facts that support every reason. All right, when you say that this person was chronically late for work, give me all the instances where they were late for work. Can you show me in the documents where there's evidence that this person was warned that being late for work was going to result in the potential termination of their employment. I mean, there's, there's a very surgical way to do it. And what you're exposing is that the reasons they're proffering are bullcrap and that they're a pretext for, we don't like this person because this person has sued us, or we don't like this person because this person is bad for business. That's going to be the challenge in the Colin Kaepernick collusion grievance, drawing that out, drawing out all the reasons why and exposing them as BS. And we've seen some of those reasons trickle into the media. Because there have been people in the media, and they know who they are, who have done a solid for sources to spread false narratives about Colin Kaepernick. The challenge for Mark Garrigus will be to expose those as, as false. And it's not easy to do. It's one of the reasons I don't miss practicing law. It is not easy to do at all. I bet you wish you hadn't asked that question. You didn't think you were going to get a little continuing legal education seminar there. Adam Nanini, how impressed are you with the Bills undrafted starters this year? Receivers Robert Foster, quarterback Levi Wallace. Is that more about development or being a keen GM that will spot those that will fall between the cracks? I haven't studied the Bills all that closely this year because they have not been a viable team. I mean, I'd be lying to you if I said I know anything about these guys. We're watching all the games at once, and as the season unfolds, we end up paying closer attention to the players, to the teams rather, that are the most relevant. And because the Bills were not a highly competitive and contending team, I can't tell you anything about these guys. I, I don't fall I don't I don't cover the Bills, and I definitely don't cover the Bills if the Bills are not one of the best teams in the NFL. So we'll see how they do next year. 
when Josh Allen is entering year two, if Josh Allen is healthy, and if they start winning games. That's how it works, though. When, when you are covering all 32 teams, to get into the weeds with teams that aren't competitive, there's just no time for it. You know, you, you get into the weeds with the best teams, and you understand what's making the best teams competitive. And for the teams that are just there in that clump of, of also-rans, well, better luck next year is typically what the attitude is. All right, let's see what else we got here. Now, now, see, I could have just skipped over that question, but but I think it it I think it's fair to be honest with the audience that it's it's virtually impossible to follow every team to that kind of degree where there is a, an an active understanding of how undrafted rookies are contributing for a team that no one is really paying attention to. So, I'm not really paying attention to the Bills right now, and we'll see what happens next year if. It gets to that point. All right, what's next here? Black 88 Elite. Do the Vikings go on a win streak? All of the Browns after firing Hugh Jackson. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I don't know that they can fix it that quickly. They got three games left in the regular season. They need to treat them like playoff games. And if they lose one, there's a good chance they're not going to make it. If they lose two, they're definitely not going to make it. And if they lose two of the final three, there's a chance. There's a chance that Mike Zimmer is the surprise firing this year. Black 88 Elite, why are we not giving any love to the Giants over the past five games? They've been playing better than the Eagles in Washington, have an easier closing schedule than the Eagles. I'm believing they have a better chance of making the playoffs than the other two. Your thoughts? I don't disagree that they have a better chance of making it. I don't think any of the three are going to make it, though. The Giants have been very impressive. The Giants have played well enough the last month and a half that they're going to be stuck with Eli Manning next year. It went from foregone conclusion that Manning is out. Remember that game, that Monday night game against Atlanta, and they... They were down two scores, and they were playing with no sense of urgency. And it was like, oh, God, just get this season over with so they can find their next quarterback. Manning's played well enough since then, really, that he's going to get another shot. And Pat Shermer, to his credit, he kept grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding. And, yeah, they're winning enough games to screw up their chances to have a high draft pick next year. Congratulations. But you know what? That carry There can be carryover. Remember last year with the 49ers? We got all juiced up about how they were going to be this year, and maybe they would have been very good if Jimmy Garoppolo hadn't torn his ACL. Terry Gensler, what team has interest in interviewing Jim Harbaugh? Hashtag PFTPM guessing game. That goes back to something that Chris Sims said. Sims said last week on PFT Live, there is a team that wants to interview Jim Harbaugh after the season. It's not the Browns. It's not the Packers. It's another team. That means there's a team out there that's going to fire its head coach. Now, I don't know why it would wait until after the season. Well, I guess what it would do is formerly interview Jim Harbaugh. But even then, they keep those under wraps. Now, I don't... I, the recruiting timeline is different than it used to be. Harbaugh has come out and said he's staying at Michigan, though. So even if there's a team that wants to interview him, it sounds like that's not going to happen. And I have a feeling we're not going to find out. This message comes from our new friends at OnDeck.com, and this goes out to small business owners who may need help managing cash flow, hiring employees, purchasing inventory, or upgrading office space. It can often be a challenge to get access to capital, and it can take a lot of time. Traditional banks lack the technology and the resources to understand what a small business owner needs, and they'd rather just deal with larger, more established businesses. So, on deck, complete and total commitment to small business owners with fast, easy, tailored financing. You can get funding in as fast as 24 hours with term loans up to $500,000 and lines of credit up to $100,000, none of which require business collateral. The application process is simple and it won't impact your personal 
credit. There's been a study by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that it takes 33 hours on average to apply for a loan with a traditional lender. OnDeck.com is focused on making the small business loan process much more efficient so business owners can focus on what they do best, taking care of their business. They have loaned over $10 billion to over 80,000 small businesses, and OnDeck.com carries a 9 out of 10 rating on Trustpilot and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. If you're a small business owner and need access to capital, go to ondeck.com slash PFT right now. As a listener to this podcast, you'll receive a free consultation with one of ondeck.com's U.S.-based loan specialists. You can apply online or by phone and get approved in minutes. Go to ondeck.com slash PFT. That's ondeck.com slash PFT for your consultations now. All right, you know what? I've been going too long. Uh, same routine as always. If you have questions that I did not get into that I did not address, pose them later this week as we uh, as we redo PFTPM. We may have some interviews later in the week. I've been talking to Mark Leibovich about bringing him back on. I'd like to talk to him maybe Thursday or Friday. We're going to try to work that out. We'll see what else is going on in the NFL. That game Thursday night is going to be a great one. We'll have PFT Live every day this week. I've got Pat McAfee and... Hall of Fame head coach Tony Dungy tomorrow. We moved Sims to Friday this week, so he'll be on the day after that Chargers-Chiefs game because that's going to be a huge game, and we want him on to talk about that instead of on his usual Wednesday. So Wednesday, it's going to be a few guests. I think Paul Allen, the Vikings play-by-play guy, is going to join us as well. So we'll have three guests tomorrow. Thursday and Friday will be Sims, and Friday will be all about that Chargers-Chiefs game, plus pivoting to the Sunday to come, which has Steelers, Patriots, and all sorts of other stuff. So thanks, as always, for your support of the podcast. Check us out at profootballtalk.com, and we'll do this again soon. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.